Peter Thomas Fornital here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. Gelding, fold May 19th, 2013, in Louisiana, by Artie Schiller, out of Lily Ladue, by Chief Three Socks. 38 starts, 8 wins, 4 seconds, 6 thirds, with earnings of $440,283, multiple Louisiana bred stakes winner, including two-time winner of the Louisiana Turf Championship at his beloved fairgrounds, Jockey Club name, 91 Assault. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. For this edition, your normal hostess is on the other side of the microphone. Thanks for tuning in to Off Track this week. As you heard my husband, Tom Morley, in the intro, we're doing things a little differently this time around as we are talking about our four-legged son, 91 Assault, a.k.a. Boo. And Tom, uh, he is very much a part of our family now. Yeah, I think, um, you know, George came along first, and then to be perfectly honest, uh, Boo came along second. Um, he he beat Grace to it and um, was very much part of, you know, he's been with us since um, a very early stage in my training career uh, when we were lucky enough to... He didn't beat Grace to it, actually. We had Grace when we yeah, got him? Because okay. we brought him down to the fairgrounds the second year we went down. Yeah, and but Grace I, was a year old. I think I'd bought him before Grace was born. No. Nope. Oh, no, you're no. right, you're right, you're right. She was Sorry. six months old, I think. We'll talk a little bit about when you bought him. So um, Bradley Wiseboard called me up one day and uh, knew of my intentions to take a string of horses down to the fairgrounds for the first time uh, that coming winter. Um, and Adam Wachtel and his partners had a Artie Schiller horse at Bill Mott who just won a maiden special weight earlier that year um, at Belmont. And um, Bradley said to me, he said, Tom, this is the sort of horse that you not should be thinking about buying you absolutely must buy this horse um so i went over to bill's belmont barn um and liana very sweetly bought him out and showed him to me and it was a very big frame of a horse at that point uh like a lot of these arty shillers he took a long time to mature physically so he still looked like a very raw individual but i felt confident that we could uh buy the horse and get him sold and um in hindsight it didn't work out 
quite as unexpected. Yeah, you were very <laughs> wrong about that. Now, for everybody who doesn't know, Tom likes to buy horses on spec, but my ultimatum is you got to get them sold. Well, that didn't really happen with Bill. <laughs> no, I called everyone who I trained for and um, said, look, I bought a, a Louisiana bread. He has all his conditions in front of him. He's going to come with us to the fairgrounds and who'd like to buy him? And we didn't pay an awful lot of money for him. And nobody was interested. And eventually I persuaded Paul Braverman to buy a leg in him. But nobody else wanted uh, to buy a, a part of him. So who literally became the house horse at that time and I think was You our, had to design your colours for him. He was our first house horse, yeah. wasn't he? He was the first horse that ever ran in our silk. So um we headed off down to Louisiana that winter with um with a horse that we'd paid for but were hoping to get the money back for, for and um he he really had to had to do it himself to be honest. So through his racing career things didn't go necessarily as planned in those first few races because he took a little knowing to be able to ride in a race and it's so funny because now I work with Richard Migliori and he was a regular rider of his sire Artie Schiller and he has told me time and time again that Artie Schiller you had to get cover because he but he and you also had a time when you uh, unveiled him from that cover because he had this really short burst and Boo was nearly the same way yeah almost identical and and he he could be very tough in a race um if you didn't get him cover if he saw daylight he would he would think that it was time to go and um you know I Joe Bravo went down to the fairgrounds that winter to ride for the first time and he'd ridden some winners for me in Jersey during the summer and Joe was I was planning on using to ride um ride the majority of our horses at the fairgrounds that winter and he did but the, and it's a, it's very funny because Joe is an absolutely sensational jockey uh, and I still think to this day he's extremely talented horseman but these two just didn't seem to get along and Sean Bridgemahan came to the barn one day and he said please can I have a go on that horse and it was beginning to get a little frustrating because he was going off at odds of three to five and on paper he towered over the horses he was running against in first level allowance races against Louisiana breads but we were getting beat and I think it took him four goes to win the condition didn't it? <laughs> it did I think he got rained off once too and then I, I think he had like two wins that first year but it took a while to get to the winner's circle but let's fast forward a little bit to he we had a rough go the third year we went down there he got rained off constantly I think he only ran twice and he he was able to win like a f entry-level open allowance race but then the following year talk a little bit about his first louisiana day uh, champions day turf so he was he was a funny horse because he kind of uh, when when you train for a new york turf season then you get your turf horses up at the beginning of the year and you get them to try and peak sort of july august september october but Boo had to do it the inside out, so he'd be he'd come back from Louisiana and he'd go to Patty Hogan's farm, um, and Patty adored having him for his summer holidays, and we turned him out every summer without fail, and I think that led to the, his longevity on the racetrack, and and honestly, he could have probably lasted even longer. Um, and then we brought him in, and we always had to run him over his head in in these races in New York to make sure that he was ready to go when he got off the van in Louisiana. And he was such a funny horse because he would get down to the fairgrounds. 
having been in the beautiful open-sided barns in New York and the barns at the fairgrounds, for those who don't know, they're hurricane-proofed, so you can't see out because the corrugated iron comes all the way down to four foot off the floor. I've never seen a horse happier when he used to he used to get down there and he'd get into his into his barn down there and he was just the happiest horse on earth and I, I honestly I think it's because he knew that he was going to run in races where he was just going to be the best horse um, and that winter he won I think I'm right in saying that that was the winter that he won the Louisiana Turf and the race in April the Ladd- as well the, not Laddie's the, poker, um, the Dixie the Poker Dixie race. Poker yeah as but well. what about watching that first Louisiana. So I was very special. We yeah. weren't actually there. Um, <laughs> we were in England, and it was um, just in the in the month prior to Christmas, and we got to sit around the iPad with my father, who at the time um, wasn't doing tremendously well, um, and my brothers were there with their wives, and we huddled around Dad's armchair. About eleven o'clock at about night. About eleven o'clock <laughs> at night, and put the iPad in front of him, and watched him win his first Louisiana Turf Championship, and um, that was a very, very special moment for all of us. But for me, especially because my father was my biggest supporter and my biggest fan, and the man that I used to turn to when I was confused about why things weren't going the right way, and he was, he was always a, a an amazing. Um, um, an amazingly sensible ear with with some wonderful advice and decades of experience in the horse industry. So to be able to watch a horse running in a stake uh, the other side of the world wearing my silks and owned by us and Mr. Braveman was was extremely special. It was. It, it was such a so happy it was just such a happy night and boo i think throughout his time on the racetrack with us brought us so many joyous moments even when he didn't win i remember him I, running second in that henry s clark at laurel and us being so excited we for were laughing about it I, <laughs> he he genuinely made me laugh so many times during races and as a very very competitive racehorse trainer uh, it's not often that you find yourself laughing at horses during races, but he—he's not the most. And we'll get to this in, in when we talk about him learning his new career now. But he, just to give you an idea, he's not a sort of authentically put together thoroughbred. He's an incredibly tall with a very, very long neck and a very, very long back and then a very underdeveloped hind end. Yeah. So sometimes he looked incredibly awkward, like a deer on ice or a ju- or a sort of out-of-control giraffe <laughs> in the middle of races. And, and But he did. He handled all sorts of going, although he preferred a firmer surface. But, um, you know, he ran and he ran, he was stakes placed in the Clark. I think he ran fourth or fifth in a graded stake at Aqueduct at the end of one year. Um, and obviously when he got down to the fairgrounds, he, um, he was, a, a, I think he won seven races at the fairgrounds and, and it's a very unique turf course down there because, uh, it, they're very tight turns with the longest straight of, uh, any turf course in America outside of Kentucky Downs. And he just relished that place and, and used. And if he was in the right place at the 3 8 pole, it took a really, really good horse to beat him down there. The one thing I find so fascinating about him is that he's not a household name by any means. But how many people have come up to us throughout his racing career and even now post just saying, 
oh man, 91 Assault, like he got, he won me so much money. I love that horse. And even when we bought him, I remember a lot of Bill Mott's team and, and exercise riders coming up and saying to me, I love 90, like he's so nice. I, I just stood and fed him peppermints and I love galloping him. And I mean, from the horse player standpoint, Michael Baychock always asked me about him. And John Dooley, who, who called seven him. of his wins and <laughs> used to love it. And so they turned onto the backside, used to love saying, 91 Assault and the Midnight Blue and Pink Apple. Then comes 91 Assault, the Midnight Blue and Pink Appellates. Defending champion is midfield for Sean Bridge Mahan at the five and a half. 91 Assault starts to move up from sixth as they go to the far side of the fairgrounds course unrestricted spun wide and 91 assault looking to get in top gear three quarters and 116.61 off the descent took the lead from guitar tribute one for long to go 91 assault is staying on along with changi who battles between horses they're close to home it's a fleet descent here's 91 assault 91 assault defends his crown and kept on stoutly to beat a fleet ascent in the turf. That guitar tribute was next with Changi and a late bid by Trey's Midnight Moon. 91 Assault at the fairgrounds wins again. Uh, he still laughs after him now. And so, no, he did. He, he, you know, everybody who ever sat on him, and I'm talking about Bill Mott's exercise riders. I'm talking about my assistants who, as soon as they sat on him, they would never get off him. Um, we fought. You know, People was, fought over getting 90 um, on the set list. So here, here's my first question for you. Do you remember the first time you rode him? I don't, weirdly enough. I can't remember if it was up here in New York or down in Louisiana. I think it was down there. Because I remember Orlando, who was one of our old uh, exercise riders, saying, oh man, he's tough. He's tough. Because he was... He is. He's a strong horse because he is that bigger type of animal. But he's not tough in the sense of throw his head up and you have to finesse him so much. He's just strong. So you you put your hands down and, and he just bowl along with you. Um, and so I remember him saying that to me when we first got him up here. And I think... I stole him from Mark a couple mornings, one of your ex-assistants, uh, down in Louisiana. But, yeah, and Jody Petty, who a well-regarded steeplechase rider, uh, going back a ways, he worked for us down in the fairgrounds, and he loved him. And Jody jokingly says, I don't even like horses, but I love this horse. <laughs> so, and yeah. One, one was the last assistant to take him down there, and one had basically at that point given up galloping horses. But the nice thing about Boo is he was semi into it being a pony at that point, uh, this, well, all the way through his career. So one used to ride out onto the track, watch the other horses train from the back of Boo, and then set off on his galloper ride there. And one... Um, wouldn't let anyone else breeze him. Wouldn't let anyone else gallop him. Uh, and very occasionally used to let our exercise riders jog him. And that was it. So, Which is what you don't want to do on Bill. Yeah. I hated get jogging him, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> he was tough to jog. But so talk a little bit about the decision when you had to, as you said, he could have gone on, but you ultimately decided to, to pull the plug. Yeah, look, it... Um, the nice thing is that he was ours. Mm -hmm. And so he owed us nothing. And he got a 10% uh, tear and a suspensory in the autum uh, no, of... Well, late summer. 
he was just starting to get ready for his yeah. campaign down in Louisiana. And I think it was after his first or second breeze. And we were in Saratoga and Axel called us and said, look, there's a bit of heat on his leg. What do you want me to do? And I said, all right, well, just jogging for a couple of days. I'm going to be down there at the beginning of next week. And when I got down there, there was definitely just a, the, the, you know, the, the heat had kind of gone away, but the ankle didn't feel the same as it had before. So we got it ultrasounded and he had a small lesion um, in his ankle. And it would have been very easy just to turn him out for the winter. He only really would have needed six months off, but six months off would have meant the end of the Louisiana turf season. Uh, and at that stage, he was seven, mm -hmm. uh, seven years old. So we were going to miss his seven turning eight-year-old turf season in Louisiana. And that would have been asking him to then come back with a view to going down there as an eight turning nine-year-old. And I, I think he probably could have done it, but um, I would never have forgiven myself if he had injured himself further and he owed us nothing um as you heard earlier you know he'd made nearly half a million dollars on the racetrack and um he'd won three stakes races for us down there and and i just felt that you know if we were going to miss the seven going eight year old career um who's to say there wasn't going to be a young gun who'd come through the ranks um when he was eight turning nine and i'd have hated to try and bring him back and got him back and then taken him down there and and been and him more not me being disappointed as much as him being disappointed that he couldn't go back down there and win like he had done so the um, most redeeming quality about him is he loves to do things right yeah he loves to do he loves to win he loves to make his people happy i think at the end of the day and uh, he he very much had he's one of those special horses that i think has that bit of human interactive quality to him where he knows your voice yep. as soon as he hears my voice walking in any barn that he's been in <laughs> you know he, he nickers to me yeah. uh, he, he's just he kind of understands things a little bit more intuitively than some many other horses that I've been around. So there's one other person in his story who we mustn't forget, and that's Tommy Lee Edwards. And Tommy groomed for me for years and taught me as much as any man has ever taught me about horses. But Tommy went with 90. Mm -hmm. And the only time that Tommy wasn't with 90 was when 90 was in a field. <laughs> and Tommy was from Louisiana as well. Um, mm -hmm. And we sadly lost Tommy the winter after um, the ninety. Summer. The summer, summer after ninety was retired, um, but he definitely deserves a, a special mention in ninety's racing career um, because he was a huge part and a huge love of nineties, and they they genuinely did love each other. But he, as Maggie said, he's a horse who he's desperate to please and. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think I, as his trainer when he was a racehorse, have seen this even more now that he's retired in that when Maggie asks him to do something, he might get it wrong once, but 99 times out of 100, he gets it right second time. And that's because he's had his go and learned what he's being asked to do. And you don't get to see that when, as a racehorse very often because the training side of things is a very meth sort of repetitive yeah. hope process. And um, um, But I can guarantee you, I, I, 
I bet that when Bill Mott took him to the gate for the second time, he wouldn't have been a horse who walked or jogged out. I bet you he came out at a canter <laughs> second time so he would have known what was going on. Well, so we also need to mention the fact that Jamie Hernandez, a, a former guest on the show, she's the one who gave him those six months off after he was diagnosed with that lesion on a suspensory and then started him back up for us in Kentucky about a year ago. And she did a wonderful job just getting him used to so many things that, well, thoroughbreds and off-track horses are, are very much used to a lot of things. There's other things that they aren't necessarily accustomed to for something as simple as the mounting block per se, or you know, getting in a trailer and just going to a show to just stand around. Uh, so she did a lot of that for us. And, and he's just been so well adjusted and so easy to transition into the second career. Now, when we first met, did you were you aware of my affinity for taking horses off track and would you have married me if you knew? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I didn't understand how deep the passion for bringing horses off the racetrack and re-teaching them, re-educating them, and re-homing them was. But it's become not nearly as big a passion of mine because, unfortunately, as a trainer, I probably have to retire many, many more horses than I would ever want to in a year, etc. But it, and, and it's, um, it's an absolutely vital part of, of the thoroughbred industry today is that we find safe places for these horses, but it's been such a pleasure to see in the time that we've been together, we've had Star, we've had Jaeger, we've had Handy Stan, we've had Xandar, and now we've got 90, um, and Treblemaker, mm -hmm. I guess, as well. Mm -hmm. So we've had six, um, and so I would kind of feel like our family wasn't complete if we didn't have at least one kicking around somewhere. <laughs> Right answer, right answer. Uh, <clears throat> but, so yes, it's very much, I don't want to say the in vogue thing now, but it's it, it, it should be what it is now. But going back to when I first started doing this, which was the late 90s, and albeit I was only like 10 or 11 years old when I first took my uh, first horse off the racetrack, it, it was kind of an unknown territory. And so I don't think there is as many outlets for these horses and as many outlets for people to learn how to take them, um, which I think we're rounding back into that because <clears throat> the barn I was at was kind of an old school uh, German lady who was very much into eventing at one point, especially when her kids were younger, and they always had thoroughbreds because... For eventing, I think they're um, obviously probably the best breed for it because you have the speed, you have the agility, you have the adaptability. Um, but so I'm just so happy for, you know, and proud of how far the industry has come as a whole. And obviously there's still strides to go forward, but just as a whole of taking care of these horses off track. But um, talking about 90s, now second career you came to a lesson the other day and what did what were your impressions of his progress so it's it's fascinating to watch a horse that you've 
uh, been so closely involved with through his first competitive career that you then get to watch them um, do something completely the opposite. And um, I don't know whether you and Omri t- either, I don't think Omri told you, but what I was discussing with him in the corner of the arena was the fact that all through his racing career, whenever I asked him for an effort, it was to be uh, longer in his stride, faster, to be more aggressive, to be... That was the point of him as a racehorse. And so now he's being asked to do something completely different and watching him learning to jump and jumping really decent-sized fences now. But the discipline for him is to learn that he has to come back under his rider and to slow down and to be more balanced and more concentrated. And it's just fascinating watching this horse mentally trying to adapt to having had years of me basically saying, go faster, <laughs> to now you guys saying, slow down. I and mean, what's Omri always uh, shouting? Slower, slower, slow. slow. <laughs> and, and, and it's not, a, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing watching him transition from, from that to what he's learning to do now with you guys. Uh, it's so funny because you'll get a lot of horses that are the proverbial kick ride. Um, where they're a little bit behind your leg. They don't want to go forward. But for me, I've always kind of preferred the horse that you have to half halt, half halt, half halt. Because for me, it feels like they're always going to be there for you. Um, so I, I love riding boot. Trust me, I am beet red and sweating in 20 <laughs> degree weather um, because it's a lot of hold, hold, hold. But I, I like that. Um, I, he, and Amri again today after our lesson just you know, comment about how smart he is because even today he went slow. He hit his, his leads. I was the one messing up, you know, not turning, not seeing the distance right. And he just adapted for me. And, and Omri's just really, you know, amazed at when we started working together, which was this past October. And, you know, we moved him around a lot. So he was settled down in Kentucky. Then I asked him to go to Saratoga. Then, you know, I think he spent like two weeks at the barn at the track. And so he was very confused. He was a little bit flustered. And it took him a while to settle in. And even more so to settle into our riding and to what we were asking him. And just from October to now, how much he's changed is is really remarkable. Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting watching these racehorses as well because we ask them to move a lot. Um, and you know, he I think ran at Laurel Aqueduct Belmont. Did he ever run in Saratoga? No, he never ran in Saratoga. But I don't know if you remember this. He Trained actually did not start with Bill Mott. He started with Keith DeSormo in California. That's right. He was with Keith and he was bought privately by Adam Wachtel. Right. So... And then moved to Bel- Bill Mott. So he actually ran at Santa Anita a couple of times, yeah. didn't he? Mm-hmm. Or if not Del Mar, too. Maybe Del Mar. And then he did spend a summer getting ready in Saratoga when I had a division up there with Mark and Tommy before he moved down here when yeah. we moved up there for the meet. Mm-hmm. So the, you're talking about a thoroughbred who's been to a number of racetracks. And, and so every time you moved him... It was always the threat of competition on the skyline. (laughs) Now when we move him, we're just desperate for him to settle in quickly and chill out so that Maggie doesn't have these sort of 
red-faced, blue-blooded rides around the place. Um, and um, No, those are the white knuckle rides. Oh, white knuckle ride, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind getting the red rides because it's just, you know, it's it's a workout riding him. As you mentioned, He's it's a lot of horse to try to collect. But yeah, um, it's the... <gasps> Um, that kind of ride. I mean, the, the, <laughs> it gets me the, flustered. To me, there are t- there are two types of horses for for these eventing situations. Obviously, there's the warm bloods, and then there's the thoroughbreds, and and you've got two totally different physical specimens, and you've got two totally mental, mentally different specimens as well. But I think that thoroughbreds are staggeringly intelligent. They're most of them are desperately willing to learn and to please you. Uh, and they don't have an obnoxious side to them, which I exactly. think a lot of warm bloods do. So I was honest. reading an article about a guy who's mainly an eventer that has taken primarily thoroughbreds. He said about 90% of the horses that he's had have been thoroughbreds. And what he loves most is their self-preservation quality. Yeah. And I, the percentage of thoroughbreds that I've ridden versus warm bloods is, it, it, you know, it's really lopsided. I've... I've probably ridden close to a thousand thoroughbreds where I've probably ridden 10 warm bloods in my life. Um, and all those warm bloods gave me the feeling that they would run through a brick wall to kill them, rather kill yeah. themselves than listen to what it, so I always feel like, you know, thoroughbreds are sensitive. Yeah. Um, but it's such a, it's such a teamwork aspect with them and the self-preservation, they want to work with you to make it right um and furthermore yeah they're they're not good they're agile and so when you you're jumping them they're a lot more careful i think about a lot of things so um yeah that's why i'm extremely biased towards thoroughbreds for more reasons than one i think it's just i think it's it's such a it's a massive relief to me as well as um occasionally you get them and they're, and they're not made to do what Maggie's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're just going to be a great fox hunter or a fabulous trail horse. Or, um, um, you know, Xandar's just gone off to, to South New Jersey and to to basically do the same as 90s doing. But, you know, when one fits into into the into the home that you want them to go to like handy stan mm. was he you know he bless his soul he really didn't i don't think he truly enjoyed jumping at all but oh see i disagree god, with you by god he used to love going out on those trail rides yeah, and things through the woods did. and things no but he he was such an overachiever yeah. that you know the self-preservation quality was there at first because he's like I know, and I admit, I've. Ta- I think '90s probably the soundest horse that I've taken yep. off the track with the least amount. Uh, of Xander. Xander's extremely from, sound. Yeah, maybe not mentally. Well, that's why I need but to get phys- away from the racetrack. Physically sound. But yeah. Handy Stand definitely had the most amount of problems. Yeah. And there's that self-preservation quality where at first when I asked him to jump, he's like, "No, I can't do this. Like, what? I, I, this is gonna hurt." And then like slowly. And not even slowly. Honestly, it was kind of like an overnight thing with him. He was like, wait a minute, I can do this. It doesn't hurt. And I think, too, it was a lot more, you know, conditioning him. And and he felt so much sounder. And he was moving so much better 
with all the dressage I was doing with him. Um, and then he was like, oh, I, I can jump. This is fine. And he actually kind of, I think he liked it. When he came off the track as well, he did not have the build, the physical build to, to elevate, if, if that's no, a polite way of putting like it. because he was, extra rib. His top line wasn't as... He definitely just didn't really have yeah. a top line. He was a little bit dipped back with a mm-hmm. with a little bit too much of a back, and then this massive shoulder. And he was yeah. a dirt sprinter at the end of the day. Really so he was downhill. built built as if he was going to fall flat on his face half the time. So when you asked him to jump, I think it was quite a uh, well for me. It was um, you were petrified, incredibly nerve wracking because you decided to do it while you were pregnant as well. So I I wasn't very happy when Maggie said, you must come to the farm and see what I've been doing with Stan. And I was like, oh, great. OK, so I potted on out there and there's the, these the, in the middle of the ring are some barrels and poles set up. And I was like, well, so I'm watching him trot and canter around and do figure eights. And, uh, and then suddenly she just turns into the middle of the ring. Six months pregnant, weren't you? Yes. On a horse who had chips in his knees, etc., etc. And he, and God bless his soul, I mean, he absolutely so pinged it, pinged this fence. But I wasn't that happy, I have to say. <laughs> yes, Stan was an overachiever. He, I mean, on the racetrack, eight starts, never finished worse than third. So, yeah. um, but so for for ninety, I think the goal is, and every time that. I ride with Omri, which is once a week. He keeps saying, well, when we go to a show, when we go to a show. So are we, do you think we're ready to go to a show? I mean, I, I would I would think that this summer it's time to go to a show because I think he's going to the Olympics at some point. <laughs> but I've been saying that since he was a racehorse as well. So, I mean, the one thing I would love to see this horse do, and I don't know whether he's ready to do it quite yet, is I would love to see him take part in a one-day event because... He is a fabulous mover on the flat. Mm-hmm. He's got a lovely discipline jump to him now, but mm-hmm. I think that the third discipline you would probably see the best in him, which would be cross country. Yeah. I think we might explore that up in Saratoga. There's more options than here on Long Island to, to school cross country. Um, so, yeah, we're going to go to a few jumper shows, I think, to start things off around here. And Omri seems pretty confident that he even told me today after a few jumps how well he was jumping. Maybe you could do hunters. I said, not going to do hunters, Omri. He's just (laughs) not that horse. Uh, So, um, but he's just, he's just wonderful. Okay. Now we're going to get to the rapid fire questions, but... I feel like I'm cheating a little bit since I'm usually the one giving the interviews and I've had so much time to think about what my answers for Boo would be. So we're going to let Tom ask them and I'm sorry for any future and previous guests that I already know the answers to all of these. So go ahead, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What is Boo's favorite treat? I think it would have to be mints for sure. Although he has warmed up, and this is a shameless plug, but he really likes the Lazy Dog horse biscuits. Uh, they Keith and Amy very sweetly sent me like a box full, and I now say, "You want a cookie?" And he stops dead in his track like tracks like he's hearing a peppermint wrapper. So it's I think it's a tie now. So he's just generally hungry most of the time. Yeah, that too. <laughs> What would his theme song be? When the Saints Go Marching In. (laughs) (laughs) 
terrible answer. Why? Pro- it's a nod to his heritage. Probably true. But and I think it fits him because yeah, it's it does, like upbeat and blah blah blah. It does actually work for him, doesn't it? Thank you. If he was a human, what would his drink of choice be? I feel like I have to answer daiquiri, but I feel like he's not that fancy. Hurricane. <laughs> I don't think he's that much of an alcoholic, though, either. <laughs> so I was just going to say a Modelo. Yeah, but... I don't know. I think, yeah. it, I think he's a spirits man, personally. I do, too. All right, let's say Hurricane. What is this? Oh, no, no, a grenade. <laughs> is that the one? Yes, it's that's the, the, green the green thing. thing. Yes, a grenade. What is his favorite thing to do? I honestly do think it's jumping. Uh, he he can be being a total jerk um, some days, not often, but some days doing flat stuff. And as soon as you, even just to a pole, even if you just point him at a pole, it's like, oh, okay, fine, good, all right, I'm happy now. I definitely know the answer to this. What is his least favorite thing? Being groomed. He hates it. Hates it. Always has, and it's the only time you'll ever see his teeth. I mean, he almost got, he was being so good today, and I got to the last sir single on his blanket, and he bit me. Never hard, he never leaves a mark, but he got me. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, but, um. Nothing amuses me more than when Willow comes back from the farm and goes, Boo bit me! <laughs> and he's never bitten anyone hard, ever. 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 He has never bitten anyone hard. But he but will I show you his to, teeth. <laughs> I get, like, Willow, mommy's currying him, mommy's doing, and girthing up too. Mommy's girthing him, stand back. And he'll reach out and just, like, mouth her head. Boo bit me! Now, if he really bit me, bitter, it would be hysterics, but yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> and what is the biggest thing that you have learned from him? And don't say patience. Oh, no, that, no, okay. no. Um, that always do your best. It doesn't matter where you came from, what bloodlines you have, you can always be better than what those would suggest. You can always get better, too. You can always learn something new. And he is just literally a four-leg, that mindset and four legs just personified. Um, Because every day, Boo tries to be better. Boo tries to learn something new. And, Uh, and like, like he doesn't have that much of a pedigree No, I and he's, would, as you said, he's not very well conformed. No, but, you know what he would be if he was a human as well. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, he would be a full scholarship Ivy League schooler because yeah, he is that came from the projects. Probably worked, worked his backside exactly. off every day of his life to learn and be better. Yep. Yeah. He's just, and that is something I've always admired in people, and he is truly the equine version of that. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, also he tests your patience at times, but that's all of them. That's You have to be a patient person. You have to be disciplined. You have to be patient. You have to be understanding and sympathetic and empathetic to, and always be willing to learn to be a good writer. And you have to have a husband who's very level-headed about these things when you ring up and say, I want to sell him. It's only happened <laughs> once, okay? <laughs> had a bad day <laughs> and boo Made it worse. didn't help 
Well, Tom, thank you for sitting down and talking about Boo. I know it wasn't too much of a ask for you. No, I can think of worse things to do on a day when it's driving snow outside. (laughs) I pick the right day. And thank you for talking to me about him. And it's given me nothing but absolute pleasure and joy to sit here and share the story of Boo with all of you. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to this edition of Off Track, and a special one as it was our 25th show here, and also because I got to do it with my husband, which was, yes, easy and convenient, but also just for the fact that we got to talk about our beloved 91 Assault, Boo, and a special nod to my husband as well, who enables me to take all of these horses that I have off the track and give them homes, and you won't find someone as vested as Tom is in their second careers, and he is in contact with several people that have taken his ex-horses from the track. As he said, Xandar is one of the most recent ones, and I couldn't be more happy that Zandy has a new home, and he'll be doing some hunter-jumpers down the road. But I also want to thank all those trainers like Tom who go above and beyond in the extra mile to make sure these horses land in safe places and end up where they need to be. And sometimes that is the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. So as always, we are big supporters of the TRF. And if you want to support them yourselves, make sure you check out trfinc.org slash off track.